All right, I better kick us off because I know we've got miles to travel in the next hour. Welcome, everybody. I'm Will Fenton, Director of Research and Public Programs at the Library Company of Philadelphia. The Library Company, if you don't already know it, we were founded by Benjamin Franklin back in 1731, uh, but we've changed a little bit since then. Today, we're an independent research library with a terrific fellowships program uh, and some really fascinating program area strengths. Uh, we have programs in early American history, literature, culture, visual culture, economic and business history, women's history, and of course, I shouldn't say this, but I'll say it, our African-American history program is our crown jewel. What you're going to hear today really emerges or really emerged from an extraordinary conversation held at the library company last April in conjunction with the annual conference of the Organization of American Historians. And the transcript of that conversation, along with Jim Down's introduction, as well as 10 really excellent essays and articles, was published this past June by the Georgia University Press. This is what this book looks like. It's affordable, it's pocket size. You should go pick up a copy immediately. I'll drop a link into the uh, chat feed. Since that conversation, I think it's fair to say that a lot has happened. On a more sober note, we've endured a pandemic that has really upended the country and cost the lives of 225,000 of our fellow citizens. It's easy to forget, but earlier this year, the president was impeached. And since that conversation happened, that very same president has appointed two Supreme Court justices who may well decide the outcome of the election next Tuesday. So this is a roundtable conversation that's really intended to revisit the conversation that happened last April, but also to evaluate some recent developments, particularly related to voter disenfranchisement. I am really happy to have a special guest who's going to bring us from history to the present to really connect our programming with current activism. That is Lauren Cristella, the Chief Advancement Officer at the Committee of 70 who's going to offer some, uh, unfortunately, very brief, but very important remarks about voting in Pennsylvania. Let me turn it over to you, Lauren. Thanks so much, Will, and thanks for having me. Uh, in addition to being uh, the, the Chief Advancement Officer at 70, I am also the President of the League of Women Voters of Philadelphia. So my day job and my volunteer work is all, all things election all the time. And like Will said, we are just seven days away from quite possibly the most important election of our lifetime. Some things to remember. Today was the deadline to apply to vote by mail. So if you have not applied to vote by mail, you can no longer do that in Pennsylvania. That was five o'clock. It's a five o'clock deadline. Don't ask me why. But if you have already applied and your ballot's late getting to you, it hasn't arrived yet, you can still go to an election office to get that replacement. And at this point, at this late stage, I would say going to one of those election offices is your best bet. Vote.pa has all the votespa.com also have all of the the election offices across the commonwealth so find that location and get there uh, the lines will be shorter now because no one's going to be applying to, to vote by mail so definitely get those get it in person you can fill it out on the spot and hand it right back in so you can be assured election officials have your ballot you don't need to worry about the tracking system updating or receiving those emails from votespa.com slash mail ballot status some other things that we were hearing a lot of about are anxieties around vote by mail. Uh, we're worried about challenges that will come to ballots. We're worried people are worried that their their vote won't count. You should be confident that your vote will count. Uh, we're going to fight for every vote to be counted. That's a, a valid vote in Pennsylvania. Um, so if you've already chosen to vote by mail, I'm going to encourage you not to spoil your ballot. That is an option in Pennsylvania. If you bring your ballot and that outer declaration envelope, the return envelope. 
to your polling place on election day, there is a process for you to surrender that ballot and then you'd be able to vote on the machine. But I, I would discourage you from doing that. Uh, there are over 3 million mail-in ballots across the Commonwealth that are out. You and even most of your friends spoiling your ballot will not make those returns come any quicker on election night. Uh, but what you will do is cause a little bit of confusion. It's a new process at your polling place. Whenever that's that happens, you, you, there's always some delay and you'll cause a much longer line for your neighbors who've chosen to vote in person. So be confident, no spoilers, uh, just get that ballot in. You can check for drop boxes and other locations. At this point, I would also not say, do not put your mail, your ballot in the mail. We're waiting uh, with the confirmation of the new Supreme Court justice. It is quite likely that the grace period that was enacted will be repealed. So uh, ballots must be received by 8 p.m. on election night. Right now, the grace period says they can be received if they're postmarked until November 6th, but that likely will not stand. So we're, we're paying close attention to that. You can follow Committee of 70 and all of the social media accounts to get the latest on all of those developments. We're tracking all of that closely. And then finally, what I would say is don't expect results on election night out of Pennsylvania. There's over 3 million mail-in ballots out there. Uh, the legislature never passed uh, a law saying that we could pre-canvas earlier. That's opening those envelopes, smoothing out the ballots, getting them ready to go through the scanners. So that so our election officials are going to process all 3 million of those ballots starting at 7 a.m. on election day. And it just takes time. It doesn't mean the system is broken or rigged or that your election officials are incompetent. It's just a time-consuming process. Um, we're fortunate to get the equipment we need to count those ballots as quickly as possible. Um, all of the counties will be working 24 hours a day. They have staffed up. They're training them now um, to prepare for this, but we will likely not have a result on election night. Um, and the best thing you can do is encourage your friends and family to just be patient. Uh, it's one of the things that we can do to guard against any kind of post-election chaos that you might see or claims, you know, false claims of victory. So I think those are my, th my things, right? Get that ballot in. No spoilers. It's election, election week is the new election day. So be about it. Thanks so much for having me and for giving me this opportunity to share the info. That was excellent. Thank you so much, Lauren, and uh, keep fighting the good fight. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Now we're going to turn to our roundtable. We've reconvened the editor and two very spirited panelists uh, for what I'm sure will be a delightful conversation. Um, I'm going to give criminally short introductions so that we have as much time as possible. Dr. Carol Anderson is the Charles Howard uh, Candler Professor and Chair of African American Studies at Emory University and a Guggenheim Fellow in Constitutional Studies. Her most recent book, One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy, was long listed for the National Book Award in Nonfiction and was a finalist for the Penn Galbraith Book Award in Nonfiction. Next, we have uh, Dr. Kevin M. Cruz, who specializes in 20th century American political history with special attentions to conflicts over race, religion, and rights. He is a professor of history at Princeton University, where he served on the faculty since 2000. His most recent book, co-authored with Julian Zelazar, uh, is Fault Lines, A History of the United States Since 1974. And Dr. Jim Downs is Gilder Lerman, NEH Chair of Civil War Era Studies of, and History at Gettysburg College. He is the author of Sick from Freedom, African-American Illness and Suffering During the Civil War and Reconstruction, and of course, the editor of Voter Suppression in U.S. Elections. In terms of format, we're going to have a conversation, but we're going to leave ample time for your questions. 
with that, I want to start with defining our terms. What is voter suppression? And bonus points, if you could find a way to talk about what is voter fraud. Voter suppression. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll take voter suppression is when you have a policy or a law that is targeted at key constituents in the American electorate. And those laws and policies are designed to create barriers or to prevent them from voting. Voter fraud is a lie. <laughs> um, this massive rampant voter fraud that creates this monster that is trying to steal elections and harm American democracy is a fiction that has been created in order to instill fear in the American public to then create a, a slew of voter suppressor laws under the guise of protecting American democracy. There were from, in 15 years, there were only 31 cases out of 1 billion votes of voter impersonation fraud. When Greg Abbott, who, the, who was Secretary of State down in Texas, had to say, we have to have these voter ID laws because of massive rampant voter fraud. When the judge asked him that key question, how many? <laughs> um, he had to admit there were two cases out of 20 million votes in 10 years. That's Clearly massive rampant. rampant. Yeah. yeah. I mean, to circle back to just the opening remarks and to sort of define this question of voter fraud, um, one of the headlines tonight in Adams County, Pennsylvania, where I am, is that there were over 300 cases, 300,000 cases of voter applications that were rejected. And so the news media was sort of propagating this idea that it was actually fraud. But when they got the person who actually works in the nonprofit to investigate it and talk about what happened, what, what, what they actually saw was that many people had applied for duplicate applications. And so that they had submitted their applications in the spring and they submitted again. But if you just saw the headline, you would say 300,000 applications were thrown out and the implication that there was fraud. So to Carol's point, we have to really be, it's really important in order to sort of look beyond the headlines in this particular case and to really see what's the, what's the big story is. Um, in terms of voter suppression, um, I think just to add to Carol and to sort of circle back to the book, I mean, it is everything in the way that Carol described it <clears throat> in terms of local and state laws that have um, been designed to prevent people from voting. And what I noticed when I had to write the introduction for the book, which I'm just sort of talking about right here, showing it like on the QDC model, is basically that when you think about how did the federal, when I think, when I thought about how do you actually write this history? How do you, how do you write a history about voter suppression and how do you sort of tell it in 15 pages to open up a volume? It, it could be its own book. And in actuality, I, I thought a lot about the federal government as a main actor. And in the South, from Reconstruction to the present, without the support of the federal government safeguarding voting in places that had been traditionally passing laws to suppress the vote, all of these various forms of laws and restrictions were passed that prevent mostly African Americans from voting. It's only when the federal government stepped in and placed a sort of safeguard or, a wa or watching what was actually happening, that they were able to prevent um, these kinds of injustices from happening. So there's a way in which it's, the it's, it's happening at the local level, it's happening in terms of how states are preventing people, but it's also a result of 
what happens when the federal government is no longer on the ground watching what's, what's going on in these various places and how this um, invariably um, emerges. Yeah, I, I just want to uh, circle back to Will's um, uh, opening pairing here because I think it is important to remember the way in which allegations of voter fraud um, fuel acts of voter suppression, right? Uh, and it's not just the, the cases we've already mentioned. Uh, the Brennan Center at NYU Law School has a great collection a rundown of all the big giant investigations that were going to prove voter fraud and came up empty. Uh, and we have to remember uh, the Trump administration had a much heralded, massive uh, program led by Chris Kobach that was going to look into this massive array of voter fraud, and it came up empty, and they quietly left the stage in embarrassment. Uh, they've been recruited because uh, President Trump insisted, even though he won in 2016, that there were three to five million votes uh, from illegal voters, uh, a number he just pulled out of thin air, and he tasked his people with proving it. And again, they had to admit they had nothing. But those widespread allegations of voter fraud, no matter how many times they've been disbunked, and again, look at the, the Brennan Center uh, at NYU Law for their, for their breakdown of this, no matter how many times it's been disbunked, the belief that there's massive voter fraud is out there on the right, and that then leads them to do these very real acts of voter suppression. And unlike the voter fraud, we have real evidence in the voter suppression about what the goal is. And it's not good governance or open elections or fair ballots. We have the case in North Carolina, for instance, where a federal judge said the African-American population was targeted with, quote, almost surgical precision. Um, th these aren't an effort to, to, to make sure everybody votes fairly and freely. It's an effort to rig and game the system. Uh, and using allegations that the other side would surely or is surely doing much worse. Therefore, we have to suppress the vote because of what they've already done. But what they've already done is fiction. Right, right. I, I mean, so in Alabama, for instance, um, Republican legislators recorded themselves saying, how do we depress the black voter turnout? Because all of these aborigines and these illiterates will get on these HUD finance buses and go to the polls. Well, in June, the 11th Circuit ruled that that voter ID law crafted by the legislators who talked about how do we depress the black voter turnout said that that law was not racially discriminatory. I mean, so <laughs> you, you, you get this really weird Kafka-esque meets Alice in Wonderland world where the evidence evaporates and the myths look like they're real and they're doing damage. Right. Yeah. And, it, and it, takes, it takes a willful ignorance of not just what's going on now, but what happened in the past. Yes. Uh, these same courts that are saying, oh, those laws aren't racially motivated, would have looked at a literacy test in the 1960s or the grandfather clause and say, well, look, there's no mention of race there. That must not be racially motivated either. And we, we all see through the fiction of those lies and yet are all too willing, some people, to believe, some judges, to believe the fiction being put forth uh, uh, now. But we, we've also, we talked about this in the book and Carol just brought it up now because I think it's such a powerful image, this idea of the HUD buses. What is that? I mean, Carol, I don't know if you just unpack that. What does that sort of conjure up in people's minds when they think of HUD buses? I mean, it's so embedded with ideas about class, about ideas about how people, that voting is not a right, it's a privilege, they shouldn't be there, that they're sort of already this disenfranchised group. And just as Carol's saying, it is this Kafka-esque moment where it's, 
we're almost sort of seduced into believing, yeah, well, wait, why would they be there? Why, you know, because they're, they're playing, they're sort of playing into this sort of mentality of the marginalization and dispossession as a way to sort of justify their disenfranchisement. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable that they actually have the audacity to say that and that people have just almost <laughs> accepted it. And, not, and I, that's why I wanted to just, I'm, I'm always fascinated by that clip because I really want us to hold on to it because it's really about who's being suppressed. It's often a class issue as well. I mean, when we start really looking at these different issues, we start looking at how people can get to the polls. We start looking at driver's license, uh, voter ID laws, privileging particular classes. Um, This this is really about not just black people, but it's also about the poorest of brown and black people. And I think that's something that we can't let that sort of slip out of the discussion as well. Right, and because a key element a key element in that, in these HUD finance buses, is the way that poverty is seen as a personal problem, a personal failing, and that those who are in poverty are there because they want to be, and they want a government handout. And so all of this thing that that debases those who are poor, all of these things that then talk about government handouts then leads to the all of the, the language of you get about welfare fraud. Right. So that these are people who are stealing from the government. So it's right. logical that these would also be the people who are stealing our right. elections, who are yeah. stealing um, uh, from hardworking, honest Americans. I right. mean, so there is a, a trope, a narrative that is coursing through here. And we heard it in ACB's so-called confirmation hearing where she talked about being virtuous. So this language about who is virtuous, the virtuous have the right to vote. The virtuous are, 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 are able to engage in the privilege of voting, but those who aren't virtuous, mm. Right. And, right. and that's yeah, the narrative. If, if people are worried about HUD buses uh, bringing voters out to your neighborhood, you could put a polling place near where they live and they wouldn't right. have to take the bus. Right. That's that's a solution right. that might work for right. everyone. Right. But, right. But as we know, after the U.S. Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act um, by removing, just eviscerating Section 4, which dealt with pre-clearance, the conditions that the uh, U.S. Department of Justice, uh, that put jurisdictions under the U.S. Department of Justice um, um, jurisdiction, is that the um, is that you had this this movement within what two hours after that, uh, you had Texas coming in with a voter ID law, but what you also had were over 1,200 polling places shut down in those pre-clearance states and jurisdictions. That's out of a total nationwide by 2018 of like 1,688. So when you say nationwide, 1,688, but 1,200 in the the few states that were under the pre-clearance provision, it gives you a sense. And here in Georgia, Georgia had, I think, the second highest total, which was like 212, Hmm. and 75% of those were in poor and minority communities. Hmm. That's not an accident. I'm thinking back to that conversation recorded in the book and about how um, there's all this talk in 2016 about voter apathy 
particularly in the African-American community, as if they're not just jazzed about Hillary like they were Obama. But it neglects the fact that you have this massive Supreme Court decision in 2013 that yeah. follows immediately after 2012, where I think you, you, uh, you, you uh, folks mentioned that um, Black turnout actually surpassed that of white turnout. In North so Carolina, the fact that it's followed it a year yes. after. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, it, and this is one of the things that, that, that is key for voter suppression mm-hmm. is that it deals with power and yeah. it deals with the fear of losing power. It deals with a party that has moved so far to the right that its policies cannot resonate in a diversified America. And so instead of reforming itself, instead of broadening its base, instead of thinking through how it can structure itself to meet the needs of the American people. And they had those those chances in like 2006. And again, after the, the, with the autopsy after Mitt Romney's loss. Mm -hmm. And instead they chose voter suppression that instead of reform, we're just going to to shut down as many of the constituencies that we believe won't vote for us. And that's where we are. It's about power. Right. But also, I mean, just on this point about emotion, I mean, it's really important too to think about, and this is also picking up on stuff that Carol has said before, and I just found it really useful. Um, We think about, well, Black voters were really excited to vote for Obama, but then they weren't excited to vote for, you know, Clinton. And now they're really excited to vote now. And there are these long lines. And, you know, initially, if you look at those long lines, you do fall into the media trap of saying, wow, people are really enthusiastic about voting. But Mm -hmm. as Carol has said, I mean, that enthusiasm is actually evidence of voter suppression. You know, in certain neighborhoods, in certain places where the voting apparatuses and mechanisms are working, people are in and out in 10 minutes, right? Yeah. But when you have those long lines, those long lines are, are reflective of the fact that the system is breaking, that they're not accommodating the, enough people, and that they and that people have to self-select and walk out of the line. Yet the headline is, well, that's enthusiasm. We need to question that. So that headline. So here we are, seven days from the election. And the question is, what can historians do? And I think there's a lot of things that we can do. We can think about placing things in historical context, but we also can just be critical thinkers and just mm-hmm. simply just say, like, you know, push back against this idea. Idea that the long line is simply enthusiasm and instead question is that long line suggesting that there's something wrong at that polling place yeah is that is that long line suggesting that there's something that's broken um i mean you know kevin kevin gave a great tweet this weekend when new york opened up uh and there were huge lines and kevin was like well it doesn't look like a ghost city after all um because there's all of these people out there trying to vote again it's there's these sort of images and ideas that are playing with the media and Twitter and other things can be a powerful force to mobilize a critique and an awareness about what's happening and changing the narrative because that's what we need to do between now and next week is to really change the narrative and be alert of the fact that yeah. voter suppression is happening. Yeah, and, and I'm with you. You know, I, I love the people in those lines. They're heroes. They're doing what they need to do as citizens. I hate that they have to be in those lines. And the point of those lines is the positive good. I mean, you know, 
during the Cold War, when we saw you know a long line down the street to go into a grocery store in the Soviet Union, we didn't say, wow, those Russians really <laughs> like their food. They have a commitment to eating, good for them. No, we use that line as a, as a sign that the Soviet Union is shattered and doesn't work, right? So why are we applauding long lines here? Again, again, the people in them, thank God. But the fact that those lines exist year after year, election after election, is an indictment of the state of American democracy. I mean, so they did a study about the Georgia primary that we had here in June of 2020. Um, and the study showed during this primary, and this was a primary that got pushed back so that they could plan for the pandemic. So this is what planning looks like. In precincts where 90% or more of the registered voters were white, their wait time was six minutes. Mm. In precincts where the majority of the voters, 90% of the voters were minority, the wait time was 51 minutes. Now you begin to think about how you, when you think about, oh, running into the bank and it's only gonna take me five minutes, you do it. When you think that it's gonna take an entire hour, then you've got another kind of calculation happening here about, okay, do I, can I get back to work? Okay, can I, then I've got to pick up my kid. Okay, I've got to, it's a poll tax that is being placed on minority communities, daring them to vote. That's what we have to understand when we see these long lines. It is a deliberate process about resource allocation. And so it is, is designed to put um, less resources, fewer resources, such as enough voting machines, working machines, enough poll workers, uh, a large enough building for the number of voters with enough machines. All of those pieces, those are calculated decisions. And those calculated decisions end up with this massive disparity in wait times. I'd like to pick up on um, a thread that Jim started to raise about um, historians' obligation to this moment. You're all historians, you're also educators. And I was looking at your dedication, uh, Jim, to Eric Foner, your advisor, who modeled the urgency for historians to respond to the headlines. I thought, that's great. But then at the same time, I'm thinking, <laughs> responding to the headlines right now is more arduous than it was years ago. Um, I'm sure Kevin, uh, you know, you could sympathize with all the time on Twitter. And I'm just wondering, like, how do you engage and deal with the churn without getting ground up? <laughs> uh, I feel ground up, so I don't know. Um, uh, I mean, I mean, part of it is uh, tweeting stuff. It, I'm glad other people found it useful. It was originally a response to keep me sane and not yell at the television and to send a message out and, and do that. that. That I think helps me and if it helps other people, uh, I'm really thrilled to hear it. Um, I think part of what uh, the upside of, the downside of social media is obvious, uh, the doom scrolling, the senderless wave of bad news that kind of comes in your face. Don't pull out your phone before bad people, please don't do that. It's, it's only gonna give you nightmares. Uh, put it away a couple hours before, you know, check out, watch something. Um, but the positive side of social media, especially for historians, is the incredible community of folks out there, right? I mean, you know, and I came to it late, uh, not until 2015, and there was already, you know, the kind of the hashtag Twitter historians community out there. 
uh, and I found them very welcoming to me, but but also very uh, very encouraging. It's nice to know you're not kind of screaming into a void alone. There are other people who know this stuff who can verify that you're not crazy for thinking that this isn't really unusual. This is really unprecedented. This is really dangerous uh, more and more. Uh, and and that is what I think uh, really helps me. Um, uh, I I clearly uh, uh, need to swat the phone out of my hand uh, more often than I do. But uh, again, I I, I find uh, it's better than yelling into the into the TV. I would I mean so I would say this. I mean, there's a couple of different things about that quote that quotation. I mean, so first, I mean, there's this sort of and just because you brought up the library company, we were thinking about what the library company is and it mm -hmm. has this very storied, important history and historians going there to do the work since the early republic in the, you know, it's it's this place for the kind of way, traditional ways people think of the production of ideas and what kind of work historians do is to sit in archives and, and write books. And so Foner is part of a long generation of historians dating back to Du Bois and others who believe that history could be in the service of social change. So I think there's, I just want to sort of acknowledge that one that one piece, but then I would say that in in terms of today, and I and I and this was one of the things that he said when I was in graduate school before the advent of Twitter and before these different things developed, I would you know come out of a section TAing for him and complain about something or say something, and he would just he would never engage me for like ten minutes about the issue. He just gruffly write write it up. All right, well that's good. Now write something about it. Like it was never it was never it was not just thirty minutes of just talking for no point it was like actually if you have something to say do it and then i would look in the nation the next week and he'd have an article on something so there was this kind of way of thinking about the role of the historian and because this is a library company i wanted to sort of elaborate on that piece in terms of this book i mean one of the things that we could think about is voter suppression again using the long lines as an example using a broken machine as an example using problems at the poll place i mean the stuff that lauren was sort of mentioning in the beginning when you look at those cases individually, they seem isolated, they seem potentially accidental, they seem like they're a mistake, you could probably walk away from it. But when you place that particular incident in historical context, you start realizing that it's part of a larger pattern of voter suppression, that this is actually what voter suppression is. It's it's often getting framed as a mistake or or an accidental issue when in fact that that's actually how we can sort of define it. So that's why today, like thinking about this conversation, the long line could be perceived as enthusiasm. In fact, if placed in the context of voting for Black people in the South, it is an embodiment and a continuation of that pattern of suppression. So that's where I think history is really useful because it offers that frame in order to make these incidents of voter suppression more visible. That's great. And, and for me, it is, the beauty about being a historian is that you see stuff. I mean, it's almost like that sixth sense thing I see dead people. Well, what that does is that you see something, you're like, mm, you know what that reminds me of? Because you're able to put it into its historical context. And then when you see folks flailing around, not being able to make sense of it, you realize that you have the skill set to not only make sense of it, but to make it legible. And to me, that is the responsibility of historians 
particularly in this moment, in this society, to make this stuff legible um, so that it leads and it helps build that strong civic engagement uh, that a democracy requires. Um, and so we can't be isolated and sitting on the sidelines, but it requires our engagement just to say, these long lines, deliberate. Voter ID, let me tell you what that really is. Um, voter roll purges, oh, have I got a story for you. And, 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 and so I found myself like when the, the 11th circuit ruled recently, you know, in, in Florida with the felon disfranchisement um, ballot that 1.4 million getting their voting rights back, yay. And then you have the legislature going, oh, uh, you're gonna have to pay some money um, and saying fees, fines and restitution. And the 11th circuit says, you know what? That's not a poll tax. You are going to have to pay and the state doesn't have to tell you how much you owe. Now, I looked at that and I went, this is a Frankensteinian monster because you have the poll tax and then you have the literacy test where you, the state is asking you to answer an absolutely unanswerable question. But that unanswerable question is your access to the ballot box. Mm -hmm. So when the state asked, how high is up? <laughs> when the state asked, how many bubbles in a bar of soap? <laughs> so when the state asked, uh, you gotta pay, how much? I don't know. I yeah. mean, it's the same thing. And so being able to have that historical lens allows us to really intervene in a space of evidence, not just rhetoric, but evidence. This is what this is. And I think that that is so important in a society that is trying to be uprooted from evidence. That's right. Yeah. Um, I'd like to turn over to audience questions soon. So folks, feel free to submit your questions and I'll do my best to get to them. But I would like to return to one other question that I thought was really great that you asked Jim, which was like, what is your first voting memory? And one of the things that struck me about it was they were almost uniformly traumatic. <laughs> you know, like uh, Heather Cox Richardson was talking about Watergate. Carol, you mentioned Nixon coming to power, Stacey Abrams, the 1980 election. Um, Kevin, you were the outlier. You had a nice story about um, Come on. 1976 voting and then voting for John Lewis during your doctoral study down in Georgia. That was great. Yeah. I, mean, I, I voted, The 1976 thing is we had a mock election in kindergarten. I voted for four. He was the only. And my dad played golf. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like. For the most part, you, you sort of came of age in politics at a time when a lot of bad shit was happening. And now we have a lot of young folks that are probably in your classes that are really entering the franchise at a dark, troubling time. Yes. What are you telling them? I think like a lot of historians, I'm, I'm deeply pessimistic because I know how bad things can get. Um, uh, but I, but I, I take optimism in the fact they haven't gotten quite that bad yet. Um, uh, and I try to, uh, to end my class, even of my students are watching, they're probably not. Uh, I end my lecture class every year with a little short riff reminding them that history is made by ordinary people and it's made by largely the young. 
and I, I teach a course on mid 20th century and I just go back over some of the people they've learned about and I tell them, you know, look, you know, when the Montgomery bus boycott started, Martin Luther King was 25. Hmm. And um, when um, uh, the major movements of the 60s happened, whether it be SDS, Young Americans for Freedom on the right, it was college students who led the way. High school students integrated Little Rock Central High. Ruby Bridges integrated her school at six years old. Uh, and, and so young people can and, and will change the world. Um, but what I'd say to, to, to people here is that, is that I really, um, I do find a silver lining in the mobilization of young voters, uh, young people in general. Uh, the, the way in which young voters turned out in 2018 was phenomenal. The signs are there, they're gonna keep it up. I sure hope so. Um, and outside the polls, uh, outside the ballots, we've seen um, uh, young people really leading the way on getting involved. Um, one of the, the few bright spots of the last four years for me has been that more and more Americans have stopped treating uh, their democracy like a spectator sport. Right. They've gotten off the bench and they've gotten involved. Yes. And whether it be through Black Lives Matter or the Women's March or the March for Our Lives Against Gun Violence or countless other causes, they've gotten up and realized they can't just simply vote every four years, maybe every two years, they're really great. They really have to get involved. The voting is key, right? But these other issues uh, I think really matter. And for young uh, voters who are out there listening, um, uh, the more you get involved, the more the politicians will listen to you. If you don't vote, if you sit it out, if you vote third party, they don't care. No politician sits at home wondering why Joe Smith and Philly didn't vote. What can I do to get Joe Smith out to the polls? They don't care. They're going to look at the people who did vote, see what they care about, and they're going to craft their policies to them. So if you've got a policy that they're not talking about, that I'm interested in, get out there, vote, and then stay on them after the election. Contact them. Demand they act, right? Don't go back. If, if, if you're a Democrat and Democrats sweep everything, your job is not done. Uh-oh. Your job is just getting started, okay? So take a breath, fine. But when that new Congress comes in, when the new president comes in, if that happens, and it's not a guarantee, if that happens, then get moving. Right. Yeah. I'm teaching a class this semester, voting rights and voter suppression. So we are steeped in it. And what becomes clear, and it's a research class, and what my students are really, really seeing is that it is the engagement that is the change maker, that it is the folks who are willing to fight for this democracy in so many different ways, from the, the folks who are running for office, for those who are laying on top of these um, um, elected officials demanding, you know, so it, it is like looking at uh, Moral Mondays, the Moral Mondays movement in North Carolina. It is like looking at fair fight here in Georgia. It is, you know, they're seeing, they're seeing, it's, it's John Lewis, it's Reverend C.T. Vivian, they're seeing it. And they're also seeing that it is this kind of engagement that can craft the kind of democracy that is responsive to the people. Um, and, you know, you care about climate change, then you need the politicians who care about climate change. You care about women's rights and reproductive rights, then you need the politicians who care about those things. 
And the only way that they care, you got to vote. Right. And every level, right? Not just, we, we talk a lot about the president and Congress, vitally important. States are, are, are where a lot of stuff happens. The right figured this out a long time ago. The Koch brothers, uh, 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 Al, uh, Al po our, our Pope in North Carolina, they figured this out. They funnel a lot of money into the states to win over these state legislatures for a couple of reasons. One, they redistrict and that leads to leads to congressional seats that are that are safe for the right. Uh, two, a lot of choke points of democracy happening here. You talk about the restriction of voting rights, voter suppression, state level. And then everything flows through those two things, right? Well, it's 2020. It's a census year. We're going to redistrict after this one. This is the state election year that matters the most. Right. So get out there and vote for people who are going to represent you. Yeah. And I would I would say this, too. I mean, just in terms of, you know, to young people to, to sort of think about what's happening today. And even though there is this crisis, I also wouldn't paint the past, at least when I was their age, as this moment of political engagement. I, I was in college at Penn in Philadelphia in the 90s. And let me tell you something. My classmates couldn't tell you who the secretary of education was. No one knew the postmaster by name. So for all the ways that Trump is problematic and for a lot of people, we now know who the secretary of education is. And people are having discussions about her and people are having discussions about the postmaster. And so there is this moment where people are, to bar borrow a popular phrase, woke. Um, but it is sort of informing them about what's going on um, at the local level, at the state level, and at the federal level. Um, and in terms of just thinking, and, and like Kevin and Carol, yeah, I actually see a sort of silver lining too. I'm te teaching a course here at Gettysburg called From Reconstruction to Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I, and I want to just sort of bring in just because you opened it, Will, about the Supreme Court Justice and Amy Coney Barrett. Um, you know, one of the things about that as a historian was that she doesn't know what she doesn't even know. <laughs> she doesn't know much. I mean, she she does, as Carol say, put herself out there as virtuous, but she also sort of sees herself as sort of embodying this originalism without understanding the historical context of originalism, leaving aside the fact that, of course, as many people quipped on Twitter, that the original founders never imagined a woman in this position. Leave that aside. She doesn't even see original, she doesn't even understand historically that originalism developed as a mid-20th century turn in response to the increasing black vote. So when Pete, when she says, oh, I'm an originalist, blah, 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 and, and um, I don't like black people, and Senator Feinstein says, oh, that's great. Like, of course, who does? <laughs> you know, but, you know, she said, just I don't like racism. She said, I don't like racism. It's like, and Feinstein was like, well, yeah, I mean, no one likes racism. I mean, but the but but the point is, she doesn't even understand how her embodiment and um, application of originalism resulted out of voter suppression. And she doesn't even understand the historical context in which originalism became a sort of leading way that some justices in the court in the 20th century began to sort of interpret the law. So, I mean, in that sense, I tell my students all the time as historians, it's important to learn how to think, <laughs> to not make those kinds of faux pas that she made. And one of the final things that I, I, I stress to my students is that right now that 18 to 29 demographic is the largest demographic in the United States. They're, they're, it's larger than the baby boomers. And so if they voted at the same rate or higher than the baby boomers, it will transform politics and policies in the United States. Mm -hmm. And that is just amazing. 
Um, and it's about power. It's about their power. It's about the voters' power. And so we never, you never cede your power. You, in fact, wield it responsibly. And that's what's so important. On the subject of power, Gail asks, what, did pa what, what role did uh, power, class, and race play in the original decision that election day would be on a Tuesday? Uh, I'm not sure race, but, but class is part of it. Uh, the election day gets set on a Tuesday in 1845. I didn't know there would be a quiz, but I think <laughs> 1845. And, um, and the reason they pick, uh, well, they, they pick that weird first Tuesday after the first Monday. So you don't have it on basically uh, on a Catholic holiday, All Souls Day on, on November 1st. Uh, but the Tuesday part, uh, I've always and correct me if I'm wrong, was basically elections were held at the county seat. And that was, you had to have time for farmers to come in to, to, to make it in from across the county. And so the Tuesday was settled as a, as a compromise, you know, middle of the week type day. So class, I guess, I mean, race, I'm, race affected everything back then. I, I can't think of exactly how uh, on this one. Uh, in 1845, I don't think they were uh, worried much about about um, uh, the massive numbers of African Americans voting who could vote in 1845, uh, uh, but the, the 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 farming aspect of that shows you just how how dated and old it is. Um, you know, there are a lot of parts of our system that are going to be difficult uh, to change. The Electoral College will, will take a lot of work, but you can make Election Day a federal holiday, move it to you know a, a two day Saturday Sunday. Uh, rolling weekend of voting um, very easily. Um, and, and the, being stuck on Tuesday doesn't seem to be something that we, we really need to do other than uh, these, these odd traditions we've, we find ourselves caught up in. Yeah. And, or, and, yeah. and, I'm, and just with 1845, by that time, there were only five states in the U.S. that allowed uh, free Blacks to vote. And those were the states that were up in New England. So mm -hmm. it, it, I mean, so you already had this kind of massive disfranchisement happening across the U.S. So, mm -hmm. Jerry asks, um, historically, what measures have proven most effective in combating voter suppression? The Voting Rights Act of 1965, reauthorized in 1970, 1975, 1982, and 2006. Um, what the Voting Rights Act did, um, and it's just the way Jim laid it out, is that we have had massive voter suppression. The Voting Rights Act put the power of the federal government in there to oversee these states that had a history of, of, of blocking um, African-Americans, and then what they called language minorities from voting so that um, you couldn't pass the laws. You know, so like right now, think about it, how we have these laws like voter ID laws, and we know they're racially discriminatory, but we've been in court now for six, seven, eight years about these laws while election after election after election based on disfranchisement has happened. The voter, Voting Rights Act stopped that. Um, and, and because it did, it was a threat. And I think that that's why one of the reasons why the US Supreme Court gutted it and made up some stuff about a non-racist America <laughs> to, to justify it. 
Yeah, um, we have a comment here from Beth that I think is actually really helpful. Uh, Virginia in 2019 is a good example of the difference local activism makes. Yes. The new legislature passed many new statutes yes. that have been voting easier this year. Yes, yes. And, and also an example of, of how every vote matters, right? I mean, you talk about a razor thin uh, uh, control of that house came down to a, to, to a single race. Really, every vote matters, right? Uh, and, 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 you know, since we probably have Pennsylvania folks uh, listening in, um, you're the one I think is going to matter this year. Uh, back, uh, I started teaching as, 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 as Will embarrassed me, Princeton in 2000, right after Bush v. Gore. And, uh, and I had just in my own, up here in New Jersey, several students who could have voted in Florida and spent the entire semester kicking themselves that they hadn't gone down and voted in an election that was decided by 500 some votes. Every vote matters. Don't be in that position, uh, you know, a few weeks from now that you're kicking yourself for not being involved. Um, uh, really take the time and, uh, and, and, and do this. And I know there are hurdles and obstacles uh, out there, but uh, it really does matter and it really is worth it. We have a question from Martha who asks, um, what actions do you recommend Congress, so this is at a federal level, take to reduce voter suppression given that SCOTUS or Supreme Court of the US has weakened um, the Voting Rights Act? A couple of things. One is that um, when we get a Democratic, um, we maintain the House and we get a Democratic Senate, then HR1, which is sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk and has been for hundreds of days um, will get moved on. And that is one that makes uh, election day a federal holiday. It provides for automatic voter registration and several other key elements to, to broaden access to the ballot box. We'll also see passage of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act that updates um, the Voting Rights Act that um, uh, the Supreme Court gutted by having a new standard for how a, um, a state or a jurisdiction comes under uh, pre-clearance review. And it's got a 25 year benchmark saying, if you have acted a fool, and that's the scholarly term, if you have acted a fool uh, in the past 25 years and treated your people like they weren't your people, then we're coming for you. And so that it, those are two of the key things. I'm gonna put this out there. I think one of the other key measures that the Democratic Congress must take into account is rebalancing the court. Because when you see the configuration that has happened under Mitch McConnell in packing the court, you know, and blocking 100 of the uh, federal appointees you know, on the federal bench under Obama, and then blocking Merrick Garland, and then pushing through, despite everything else, over 200 appointees into the federal bench. And then, I mean, and this last one was just, so we've got the courts now packed. It's going to look like, it is looking like after reconstruction where you had the Supreme Court systematically dismantling all of the work that the radical Republicans had put in place in order to build a solid democracy for the freed people. So, the 14th, the 13th Amendment, 14th Amendment, 15th Amendment, Force Acts and Enforcement Acts, that U.S. Supreme Court messed up every last doggone one of them. And it's why we had to have a civil rights movement in the middle of the 20th century 
after the U.S. had helped defeat Nazis. And right. so we don't have another 75 to 100 years for to, to try to move past this court that's going to be shooting down every one of the progressive pieces of legislation coming through. So that has to be on the docket as well. Kevin, did you have something else that you wanted to add there? I just want to make sure I don't cut you. No, off. I mean, just to underscore what I think Carol said it really beautifully, but uh, you know, we, we talk about the Voting Rights Act. We got to remember the Voting Rights Act was officially titled an act to enforce the 15th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, right? Yeah. Uh, this is all part of a long uh, a, a kind of seamless uh, a process. Uh, and to restore the Voting Rights Act is to restore the enforcement of the 15th Amendment, right? Uh, and I, I hope all the people talking about originalism now are ready to talk about the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments and what they originally meant, because uh, let's have that conversation. Right. Have you noticed how that doesn't come into their originalism? But nope. I'm like, you realize... Well, I mean, look, uh, Kavanaugh just said that, that, that thing where he said we have to count all the votes the night of the election. Yeah, that's an originalist stance. That's that's a good one. That's definitely what they did in 1804. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm tired, right. Carol. I'm so tired. <laughs> All right. We got a, um, another sort of very of the moment question from Andre who asks, can we understand the decision regarding regarding Wisconsin yesterday? Um, or can we understand it as a um, stance of voter suppression? This is the same court. Remember during the primary when COVID-19 was just racing through Wisconsin. I mean, that pandemic is hitting hard. And you had the Secretary of State's office getting up to 10 times more requests for absentee ballots. The staff is doing their best to get those out to people. But by April 6th, and the election is on April 7th, Tens of thousands of people still had not received their ballots. This court said, and it was a Brett Kavanaugh decision, 5-4, that the, the absentee ballot had to be postmarked by election day in order for it to count. And this dealt to get some kind of grace period so that because the state hadn't got them to everybody yet to try to get some kind of grace period. And Kavanaugh and this fought, the, the, the conservatives on the court basically said, no, there is no grace. So even though you don't have your absentee ballot yet, it still has to be postmarked by tomorrow to count. That's what sent all of those people out into that long line to face what I call a COVID-19 firing squad because they were demanding the right to vote. Um, and, and so the decision yesterday is of the same ilk. This is not a court that believes in voting rights. If you look at their history consistently, there may be one, I'm trying to think of one, it's not coming, <laughs> where, you know, they'll look like, oh, we're kind of almost sort of liberal, kind of, and then when it comes to the voting rights case, they're like, no, nah, we're not doing that. Yeah. This is in line with that. And let, let's not forget that, that the same Kavanaugh who wrote that uh, decision 20 years ago in Bush v. Gore was representing the Bush campaign, arguing that they had to extend the deadline <laughs> ballots in Florida because he, they were hoping that the absentee military ballots would tip the state. He was in court, I think, on Thanksgiving back then, arguing it had to still be stretched out for, for a later date. So 
something's changed. I'm sure his principles are exactly the same. I can't imagine what would have caused him to take the exact opposite position today. But mm. have yeah. you called have, Kevin? Did you call him out on Twitter on that? Have people written about that? Somebody yeah. has. Yeah, it's it's in my feed. It's all a blur. These, but yeah, somebody had had noticed that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm sure that uh, Kavanaugh will be uh, severely censured for hypocrisy. <laughs> Susan College is very sad at the moment, I, I heard. I'm, very, I'm, I'm sure she's very concerned. Trouble. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, um, oh, we that broke Carol. Oh, my God. <laughs> Sorry. I am, I am a Mainer at heart, and uh, it pains me that she's still representing our state, and I'm hoping that she is uh, gracefully shown the exit this election. Can I hope. All right, well... I think it's about time. Um, thank you all for a wonderful and enlightening conversation. And thank you all of you for joining in, in raising such excellent questions. Thank you. Great. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank, thank you everybody so much for having us. I really appreciate it.